You're listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is made possible with support from the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences, and the University of Washington's School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. This is Tim Klein with the Making Waves podcast. Joining me on the phone is Kate Borsma, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of San Diego. Today, she's going to tell us about a recent study looking at how stream invertebrate communities respond to severe drying and drought. Thanks for joining me, Kate. Yeah, no problem. I'm looking forward to it. In this study, you set out to test how progressive changes in stream habitat due to drying might impact invertebrate community composition. So how does habitat change as streams lose water, and what are the ways invertebrate communities might respond to these changes? This study was motivated by um, changes in hydrology that we're seeing in streams across the southwestern United States, and really that people are seeing all over the world in arid regions. And so Andrew Bolton published this really um, impressive piece in freshwater biology, a paper called Parallels and Contrasts in the Effects of Drought on Stream Macrovertebrate Assemblages. So he drew up this scheme, this schematic diagram that we've um, used sort of as a basis as a hypothesis generating tool for our current paper. And he suggested that the drying process in streams occurs as a series of thresholds. So as drawing progresses, you have these periods of sort of gradual decreasing diversity that are punctuated by these really rapid, um, dramatic drop-offs in diversity. And those drop-offs happen with natural hydrologic transitions, like um, streams contracting away from the banks, so lateral contraction. And then the next threshold that he proposed was the uh, longitudinal fragmentation, so that's when a stream stops flowing and becomes isolated pools. So he suggested that you would also see a dramatic decrease in diversity with that transition. And then the next, and maybe most severe transition, is when all surface water is lost. So you lose those last remaining refuge pools and the water goes completely hyperreic. And so he he drew up this diagram where he had the total number of tacta on the x-axis and time on the y-axis as drawing progressed, and it looked like a series of steps, right? And so now there's a lot of evidence to support that, that each of these transitions sort of knocked out a, a bunch of tacta that were adapted to that specific environment and are not adapted to the new one. But nobody had looked at the periods in between those thresholds. And so we assume that dry, that um, drying decreases richness and diversity fairly regularly as the streams fragment and they become hotter and higher conductivity. The environment becomes harsh, and we would imagine it would be prohibitive for aquatic organisms. Um, but nobody really looked at that explicitly. And so in our study, we wanted to look at this one particular period that happens in between fragmentation and the complete loss of surface water. So as those stagnant pools, these refuge pools, as those are drying, if there are any changes that occur during that process, or if tax are resistant to that gradual drying, and then we only see those big 
dramatic changes when all surface water is lost. So our study was based on this concept of periodic depth changes. So a lot of my work is motivated by this framework that Andrew Bolton laid out. But in addition to that, um, two of my co-authors, Mike Brogan and David Lytle, they've been sampling um, fragmented stream habitats in the southwestern U.S. now for over a decade. And so I have this amazing data set, um, and we can see these patterns. We can see changing hydrology in the southwest. We can see how aquatic invertebrate communities change with stream drying. And they put out a great paper, Bogan and Lytle, 2011 in freshwater biology, in which they tracked a single stream for eight years as it dried. And they found that when the stream dried completely, maybe not surprisingly, they saw this threshold um, that Bolton had described. However, they did not see changes in species richness. They saw lots of changes. But most of those changes were reflected in species replacements and not actual losses. And so we wanted to take that idea and, and really examine what the mechanism is. Because when you see drought, it's easy to attribute changes in aquatic communities to the drying process because they're aquatic organisms. Um, but drought is complex. It is comprised of all sorts of different factors, temperature and desiccation and habitat loss, fragmentation, all sorts of stuff. And so of course, in order to pinpoint the exact mechanism behind these patterns that we're seeing all over arid regions now, we needed to do manipulative experiments. And so that's what motivated most of my work. And so in this particular study, we just wanted to manipulate drying and create these three different drying treatments and then compare how species responded. And in particular, we were trying to mimic this trajectory of gradual drying through time. So we used mesocosms, um, and we were testing these two competing hypotheses. So our mesocosms were representing fragmented pools along the stream channels, as we normally see these streams in the desert southwest fragment seasonally. And so they naturally, every winter, they flow, and every summer they become these standing water pools. And those pools usually serve as refuges for a whole bunch of taxa so that they can survive through the dry season. Um, so in this study, that was what we were trying to mimic. So we used aquatic mesocosms, and we inoculated them with uh, aquatic invertebrate communities from a bunch of fragmented streams in southeastern Arizona. And then we applied these three different drying treatments. So in one, the control, we maintained the water level at about 10 centimeters. And then for the other two treatments, we let them dry to certain degrees. So the moderate treatment, we let it naturally dry to seven centimeters depth. And for the severe treatment, it dried down to one centimeter. And so we chose the severe drying treatment in particular to mimic this really extreme abiotic stress. Because at one centimeter, it just means that the bottom of the tank was wet. Um, there were wet sediment, maybe a few little dimply pools. But there really wasn't a lot of habitat to serve as a refuge for the aquatic invertebrates. So using this setup, we wanted to test these two hypotheses that we called the drought vulnerability hypothesis, which is when richness gradually decreases with drying, 
or the drought resistance hypothesis, which just means that richness remains constant until complete drying occurs. So we wanted to see if this was a gradual decrease in diversity or if it was constant diversity and then a threshold. So we applied these treatments. This was in the summer of 2011 in southeastern Arizona. And at the end of a six-week-long experimental period, we destructively sampled all these invertebrates, and we took them back to the to Oregon State University and identified them. And we did not find any differences in richness or Shannon diversity between treatments. And we were kind of floored because the severe drying treatment was really, really severe. I mean, there was only one centimeter of water left in the tanks. And so that's not a lot of refuge habitat for these animals. And so we did see that abundance decreased from the control and moderate treatments to the severe drying treatments. Abundance decreased and density increased. So densities in the severe drying treatment were much higher than densities in the other two treatments. And that um, makes sense uh, because there's this habitat contraction that occurred. But we expected to see differences in species richness, um, and we didn't see that. So one of the other things we wanted to look at, in addition to taxonomic diversity, was functional diversity. So functional diversity has received a lot of attention in the literature now. Uh, because it looks at species traits and uses the characteristics of the species to sort of uh, assess how they respond to the environment. And so luckily we have this great database that several of my co-authors have been developing that provides aquatic invertebrate traits information for taxa in the southwestern United States. So it was this great resource that we wanted to use to look at functional diversity in addition to taxonomic diversity. And so with our functional diversity um, statistics, we were using these four different, um, four different functional traits that we picked because we thought that they would be associated with both species responses to drying and also um, those species impacts on trophic structure. And so we used four traits that were body size and functional feeding group, and we called those trophic traits because in classic aquatic invertebrate studies, those traits are frequently used to say something about food web structure. And then we also used two traits that we referred to as resistance traits. And those are reflecting the ability of aquatic invertebrates to survive, to persist through a drying disturbance. And those traits were respiration mode and diapause. And so respiration mode, of course, is how the animal breathes. And aquatic invertebrates can breathe either directly from the air or using dissolved oxygen in the water. And then diapause is the capacity of some of the invertebrates to sort of insist, to sort of to, to resist complete drying, become dormant, and then pop up again when the water returns. So we thought that respiration mode and diapause would be important and could maybe differentiate between those taxa that could survive the severe drying treatment and those that could not. So after the experiment ended and we really didn't see any differences in taxonomic diversity, we, we repeated the analysis using these functional traits and we found that there were also no differences in functional trait structure. 
structure in the community. So no differences in functional richness and no differences in functional diversity. And so this was really surprising to us. Um, we specifically designed the severe drying treatment to be severe. Um, and so uh, when we didn't see any responses by the aquatic invertebrate community, that suggested to us um, that these animals have much higher resistance than we had previously thought. And so I guess we should mention here, I haven't defined resistance and resilience. One of the big goals of this experiment was to differentiate between them, between resistance and resilience. Resistance is when species survive a disturbance in C2. So who's there and can actually last through the disturbance? And then resilience is when species recover following a disturbance. So maybe a flash flood comes through, and after that you have recolonization by species. And so usually other studies that have been published uh, can't distinguish between these two because if you sample before a drought and you sample after a drought, you don't know if those species afterwards have been there the whole time or if they just recolonize following drought. And so in this study, we used um, a shade cover. So we covered the tanks to prohibit dispersal and colonization. And so by doing that, we wanted to isolate only resistance. So there was no community recovery. So all those species that we saw at the end of the experiment were ones that we put there when we inoculated the tanks in the beginning of the experiment. And so that made our results even more surprising because that means that all of those taxa that survived were there in the beginning. Because we saw this high level of resistance because we didn't have any differences in species richness or species diversity between our treatments. That was support for our um, drought resistance hypothesis. And this makes sense given some of the biology of organisms that live in arid environments. So in arid regions, aquatic organisms have evolved this array of amazing adaptations that allow them to persist in their extreme environments. So these include things like desiccation resistance, um, excellent dispersal capacity so those insects can fly from isolated habitat to isolated habitat across the landscape. Some of them have life history adaptations so that their life histories are timed to coincide with these extreme environmental events. So you'll have a whole bunch of aquatic invertebrates that all emerge right before streams dry up. And that's been recorded in arid regions around the world. And so when we tried to put um, these really surprising levels of resistance in context, uh, this just gives more credence to this idea that there are amazing adaptations <laughs> to survive drought disturbances. And so because we saw that high resistance in both taxonomic and trait diversity, I mean, that gives, that gives us some hope that these taxa at least have a little bit of a buffer to respond to climate change and anthropogenic water withdrawals that are increasing in the region. So I like to study arid regions because they're um, undergoing rapid environmental changes now. So it seems like a very important conservation goal to understand drying processes in arid regions. But it's also just an interesting time to be looking at how abiotic and biotic factors are determining these 
assemblages of organisms that we see across the landscape. And so I, I like, I really like looking at functional redundancy and functional diversity as aspects of these studies. But I also think that we need to be cautious about how we use the idea of functional redundancy. So functional redundancy uh, is a contentious idea in the literature, and it's especially contentious among conservation biologists because the word functional redundancy itself sounds like uh, functional equivalence, like we could get rid of one of those species and the ecosystem would still function in exactly the same way. So some have argued that this is a reason that we don't need to care as much about the loss of species because these species are all functionally redundant. And I disagree with that. <laughs> and I think many conservationists disagree with that as well. And that's because your, your definition of functional redundancy is going to depend strongly on the traits that you include in your analysis. So in our analysis, we included these four traits, two trophic traits and two resistance traits. And we did that on purpose because we care, we want to figure out how aquatic invertebrate communities are responding to these changing drying regimes in the southwest. And we found high functional redundancy, which is encouraging. However, we didn't include any traits that have to do with how these organisms are affecting their environment. So how these different animals contribute to ecosystem functioning. And so we can say that they're functionally redundant in this really important drying context. But we don't know that they're functionally redundant for a whole bunch of other traits. And so I just like to add that as a caveat because I would hate for anybody to use this study and this super exciting, awesome level of functional redundancy as an excuse to dismiss the need to conserve these taxa. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information about this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please join us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science. Thanks for listening.